Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your grace that is greater than all our sin. We thank You, God, that while we were still sinners, You died for us. And Lord, as we celebrate uh, what You have done for us, Lord, as we celebrate our salvation, we also remember Your sacrifice and we proclaim Your second coming as often as we receive the bread and of the cup. Thank you, God, for all that you've done and for all that you will do. We praise you. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, as we look at the real Jesus. And as we talk about the real Jesus, this is a, uh, this is a popular book or a popular chapter. Uh, talking about the second coming of Christ. And, you know, we live in an age where people keep making all these claims to when Jesus is coming, and they come up with specific dates. matter of fact, I looked it up this week of all the people who have uh, made it predicted a date, and I'm talking about outside the Mayan calendar people. I'm talking about Christians who have pronounced dates that this is when Jesus will return. And uh, there have literally been hundreds and hundreds over the last 50 to 60 years of people who come out and make these proclamations. Of course, um, we know that Harold Camping came, came out with those last year, that here's the date, and that didn't happen. Then he gave another date, and then another date. And, and by the way, as you look back historically, that has been a consistent theme of people who come up with a date, that date's wrong, then they moved another date. You know, after about the fourth or fifth one, people catch on, uh, that maybe this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because here's the one thing that the Bible tells us. It tells us two facts we'll see in this, cha- in this chapter. Number one, Jesus is coming again. Fact number one. You can just write it down. Number two, no one knows what day that will be. No one knows the time. Those are the two facts. So when people say, you know what? I believe this is the date. Even bless his heart. I love Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley even came up with a date back in 1758. Jesus is going to come back on this day. He missed it. Okay. And I love Charles Wesley. If you're a Methodist, I'm not picking on you. All right. But we don't know. Jesus himself said, when he was here on earth, the earthly Jesus said, no one but the Father knows the date of the return. So those are the two facts that we can establish here as we look at our text, as we read this. Now, I do want to give you some a little bit of theology background, a little bit of theology terminology, just so that we'll kind of have a little understanding as we walk through this, and because you hear these words sometime. And so uh, this will just give you a little education on that. First word is eschatology. Eschatology simply means this. It's the study of the end times. It's the study of the end times. Next word for you here that we have is a hysteris, okay? Now, hysteris are people who look at the events of history and they uh, basically say that's what was going on here. They assign them to different periods in history. And so if they le- read Mark 13 or they look at the book of Revelation, they go, okay, well, in history, this is what was happening in that time period. And this describes what's going to occur for us throughout history. So the best example to describe this to you, and maybe some of you are familiar with it, and some of you may even take this position, and that's fine if you do. I, I know several pastors in this area that take this position, but they believe, uh, for example, you take the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, when it talks about the seven churches, starting with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea, and each one of those churches designate a time period in church history. From the beginning, uh, which would be the church of Ephesus, the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, until now, this time period that we live in now, Laodicea. 
Now, this p- position has been around for a thousand years. And guess what the position was a thousand years ago? Guess what church they were in? Laodicea. That's the problem with it, okay? Whenever, whenever you're describing it, you're always in the church of Laodicea, okay? So it, it might, might be possibly correct, uh, but, you know, a thousand years from now, we can't keep calling it uh, Church of Laodicea, all right? And I know some of you are upset if that's your position. God bless you. Remember, see our elders uh, and send them an email about your complaints. Um, next position, the futurist, okay? The futurist. These are the folks who write most of the books, quite frankly, and say, you know what? All those things in the second coming, they haven't happened yet. They're all coming in the future, okay? Uh, and we'll talk about that. And I think there are a lot of things that happen in the future, but there's some things that have already occurred. So we need to be careful about assigning everything to the distant future. We can get very uh, kind of ethnocentric, egocentric would probably be a better, better word, that it's all about us. And these other poor people for 2,000 years just didn't really see any prophecy. They, I don't know what they were thinking, but they missed it all, okay, because it's all for the future. So it's, uh, I certainly believe this. When Jesus spoke those words... It was all about the future. The question is, has some of it already transpired? Okay, that leads us to our next position, preterists. Preterists are those who believe virtually everything has already happened. Okay, a futurist say, we believe almost everything's going to happen in the future. A preterist says, everything's already occurred. All right? So they're, they're kind of the opposites, the polar opposites on the pole. So then we would go to the partial preterists who would say, you know what, most of the things... Uh, have happened, but there's still a lot of things that haven't. That would be a partial preterist. And then the position that I'm going to take is one of foreshadowing. Now, what does foreshadowing mean? Foreshadowing simply means this, that we, when Jesus was speaking, it had a meaning right then. It had a specific purpose and a specific meaning at that time. And throughout history, and, and excuse me, and as you look throughout history, it continued to have meaning, and it has a ultimate meaning. It foreshadows what will come in the very end. Okay, so Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish theologian who doesn't even ascribe to the New Testament, said prophecy is like this. He said the word of God, when prophecy is made, has a meaning that is very specific for that day and time. And it'll have a meaning a 100 years from then, a 100 years from then, a thousand years and for out eternity. The word of God does not return void. So when he speaks the word of prophecy, you don't have to wonder, well, is it for now or is it for later? And the answer is yes. And that's the great God that we serve, that His Word, His power is so powerful that it's not maintained or set in boundaries in one little lump of time. It has meaning for then, for now, and forever. So with that understanding, I want us to look at our text here today with that mentality and uh, with that understanding. Now, before we do that, I do want to stop because I know you constantly hear about the reliability of Scripture. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to just teach one little apologetic point. And apologetics, I mean the defense of the faith. Because there's a lot of skeptics out there, especially since the Da Vinci Code, where people say, well, yeah, Jesus made those claims in Mark 13, and he makes these claims in Matthew chapter 24, but that's because those books were written a long time afterwards, and they were inserted in there. So those books weren't really written before these prophecies transpired, before these truths became evident. But let me, let me just take just a moment for us to talk about that. Now, we know that uh, the siege of Jerusalem happened in basically 70 A.D. That's when the temple was destroyed, and that's when Jerusalem was overtaken by the Roman government. After a short time, about three to four years, that the, um, the Jews kind of over, had overtaken the city and they had kicked the Romans out. 
Uh, so the question becomes, when can we date the gospel of Mark that we're looking at right now? Now, most scholars would say Mark uh, was the first gospel written. Some would say Matthew, but either Mark or Matthew. And the question begins becomes, when were they written? Well, I think one of the ways we can define that is by looking at the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which we know was written by Luke, which we know Luke wrote after the Gospel of Luke. And if we know the books of Matthew and Mark were written before Luke, even if they were written at the same time, it can help us with our dating. Now, the destruction of the temple we know was in 70 A.D., so let's just walk through these facts, first of all. The book of Acts must have been written uh, before 65 A.D. for the following reasons. There's no mention of war. No mention of the Jewish wars. A huge part of Jewish history, but there's no mention of the wars whatsoever. Not only is there no mention of the wars, there's no mention of the destruction of temple. Matter of fact, we see just the opposite in Acts chapter 2. We see that they're still going to the temples. If, if there was an event of that magnitude, of the temple destruction, of Jerusalem being destroyed, don't you think it would have been mentioned? Number three, Stephen and James are both mentioned as being martyred in the book of Acts. And we go, okay, well, that's, that's fair. That's good. We believe that. That probably happened. But you know who else was killed? Um, you know who else was killed before 70 A.D.? Well before 70 A.D.? Matter of fact, uh, scholars estimate they were probably somewhere around 65, 66 A.D. was Peter and Paul. So if the book of Acts is written after that time period, don't you think they would have included the death of Peter and Paul, the two most predominant figures in the New Testament outside of Jesus Christ himself? Why would you mention Stephen? Why would you mention James and not mention Paul and Peter? Okay, so as we look at those facts, uh, we can pretty much point to the fact that the gospel uh, of Luke was written before Acts and Mark and and, uh, Matthew were written before Luke, therefore giving this a dating of Mark somewhere between 53 and 63 A.D., which will be within about a 25 to 35 year time frame of Jesus speaking these words, disproving the skeptics who say, no, the Gospels were written hundreds of years afterwards. So, with the two facts that Jesus is coming, and we don't know when He's coming, let's start our text and let's look in chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And as He was going out of the temple complex, one of His disciples said to Him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said, Do you not, do you not see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another. Not one will not be thrown down. So when I was in uh, about, I guess it was in August the 2nd, 2001, I was in New York City. My wife and I had gone to New York. I'd never been there before. And so I told her, I want to go to the World Trade Center. So we went to the World Trade Center. And I remember standing on top of the World Trade Center and looking out over the city. And I even paid the quarters to get those little binoculars and looked all around the city. And what, you know, other than the smog, it's like I could see forever. And I just remember thinking how mammoth and how massive and intricate that building was. And if somebody had come up to me while I was standing on top of the World Trade Center, and they go, hey, buddy, in 40 days, this is going to be leveled to the ground. Leveled to the ground. I'd have thought, you're a nut. Matter of fact, let me show you a couple of pictures real quick, Kent, if you have them. Um, the World Trade Center. Maybe we won't show them today. Uh, there we go. That's what it looked like uh, when I was there August the 2nd, uh, 2001. And then 40 days later, this was what it looked like. Okay? I couldn't have ever foretold that. If somebody had said that, I would have thought they were a nut. 
But if I had heard that, I tell you what, I would have been looking for those people 40 days later. I'd have been calling the government because they knew something that no one else knew. This is what Jesus is doing right here in this text. They're looking at these massive stones. Josephus said they would be, uh, one stone was 60 feet long and 13 feet high. Scholars don't even know, archaeologists don't even know how did they get them in there. And they're looking at this massive structure, this temple that Josephus said there would be as many as 250,000 people in at one time. And they're looking at that and they're going, man, how massive. I think we're done with that picture. And he's going to say they're going to be thrown down. There won't be one stone on top of another. And you know what happens in 70 AD when Titus comes in with a Roman army? Matter of fact, he comes in about a year before they lay siege and they finally overtake it. They destroy the temple and and they had been told there was gold in the walls. And so they literally knocked every rock down. Every stone was turned over. And this prophecy comes true in the next 30 years. Matter of fact, if you take the dating of Mark of when this was written at somewhere between 55 and 65 A.D., within 10 years of this being written, it will occur. Amazing. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place. Now, what we're about to enter in is a, I believe, a foreshadowing of what is to come. Now, there's also a method of interpretation of Scripture or writing of Scripture, prophetic Scripture, where you see them talking about the present and the future, and they bounce back and forth. So I don't think we have to get into this big debate about, was he talking about 3,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, or was he talking about right then? And I would say, yes, he absolutely was. He's talking about, the, certainly about the present. I think there are some things that are about to transpire that we cannot deny that Jesus is speaking to. But we also know what he's ultimately speaking to. So with that understanding, let's continue with our text. Then Jesus began by telling them, watch out. And he uses this term, watch out. Be on alert multiple times in this text that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Many people are going to come. We know, depending on which historians you talk to, there was anywhere from 70 to 200 people coming, making the proclamation that they were the Messiah from the time of Jesus until about 100 A.D. So we see this continual line of people making these claims, and Jesus knows it's going to happen. And he said, look recognize there are going to be people who are going to come and deceive you. You're going to see the Roman Empire pushed out of, the, of Jerusalem in the temple temporarily. And you're going to think some of them are going to make proclamations. Hey, I'm the Messiah. Follow me. But he says, don't be deceived. Don't be, don't be alarmed. He said, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. These things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So we know certainly uh, the Jewish nation is at war with the Roman government. But also in the Roman government itself, uh, we know about 67 A.D. when Nero dies, there is a uh, there's a fight over who will become the new Caesar. And there are four guys over the next 12 to 13 months who will serve as Caesar. And there's constant corruption and turmoil occurring inside the Roman government, one of the reasons that the Jews are able to hang on so long and be in charge of Jerusalem. So he continues, he said, there will be earthquakes in various places. We know from uh, historical information that there were two great earthquakes during that period. And famines, Luke speaks about the great famine in the book of Acts 
We know that there are famines today. We know that there are earthquakes are intensifying today. There, these are the beginning of the birth pangs. But you, be on guard, be alert. There's that term again. They will hand you over to the Sanhedrin and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. We know that Paul constantly stands before those in authority. He stands before Agrippa. He stands before Festus and he's flogged. And we see these prophecies coming true. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry about what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Then brother will betray brother to death and father to child. And children will rise, rise up against their parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then in those, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The abomination leads to desolation. That's an Old Testament term that's used several times, but it basically describes uh, when those who are unclean come into the temple and they begin to use the temple in an unworthy manner, in a desecrating manner. There, I wish we had time. There are multiple times this happened historically, but certainly it's going to happen when Titus uh, comes in and levels the city and levels the temple. The man on a housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mother in those days. Pray it won't happen in the winter. For those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world, which God created until now and never will be again. Unless the Lord limited those days, no one would survive. But he limited those days because of the elect whom he chose. And it continues here. And then if someone, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah. Look there. Do not believe him. Jesus gives that warning again. False messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. And if possible, the elect talking about the believer. And you must watch. Have you uh, have you have told I have told you everything in advance. And then Jesus, I believe, even speaks uh, again about the upcoming and about the future. And he says, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. I think he's talking about now the distant future. Uh, of course, we know that at the crucifixion, there's an earthquake. We know that the sun is darkened. Again, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus's ultimate return. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, that's a, that passage right there is easy for us to just kind of skirt over. And a uh, matter of fact, it literally says, and uh, they will see the Son of Man coming with clouds. And your translation might use the word with clouds, with great power and glory. Now, what he's speaking about right here is the presence and the glory of God, which reigned upon the earth in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Before Adam and Eve decided to become their own saviors, before they decided to enter into the equation of sin, the presence of God dwelt with them. And what happened then? There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no death. There's no poverty. There's no hunger. There's no disease. And quite frankly, that's what when Jesus comes back, that's what he's bringing. He's coming in the Shekinah 
glory is the word that's used right there. The Shekinah power, the Shekinah glory of God. And we see the evidence of, of a cloud in other places in Scripture. Probably the most popular in the book of Exodus. Remember when the Hebrew children are delivered out of Egypt. How do they follow the presence of God? It is a cloud at day and fire by night. A, a representative and a picture of the Shekinah glory of God Almighty. And Jesus is going to come back. And the full presence of God is going to come back and reign upon this earth. He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that the summer is near. In that same way, when you see these happening, know that He is near the door. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. This generation, now that's been problematic for scholars for years. What does he mean, this generation will not pass? Well, uh, one of the methods, one of the interpretations is he's talking about the genre, this group of people, therefore refusing, uh, uh, making reference to the Jews, will not pass away. They will not be exterminated. They will not become extinct until I come. So that's one interpretation. The other is, remember the foreshadowing principle that, you know what, he's speaking to that generation. Right there. But we continue with every generation. Okay, we see the signs and there will be a generation that will finally see it occur. But think about it from the foreshadowing standpoint. So it could be either one of those and we're, we're not certain. But what we know, Jesus is coming again and we need to be ready. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day, speaking of the final day. An hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except for the Father. Again, while he's on earth here, Jesus doesn't know what day he's coming. Why would we think anybody on TV knows? Why would we think anybody that's selling us a book knows? Okay, We want to be ready. God wants us to be ready. And uh, we don't need to yawn when we hear that. Matter of fact, here, here's the deal about the, second com- the doctrine of the second coming. I don't think there's any place other than North America we hear about the second coming. We just kind of go... Yeah, Jesus is coming again, but you know, you know, what what do we do about it? No big deal. Matter of fact, I kinda hope he doesn't come anytime soon because you know, I'm gonna have my house paid off in a couple of years and I really would like to travel. And I would really like to go some some places that I haven't been. And I mean we kind of take that approach and that kind of mentality when we hear the second coming. But let me tell you this. If you're living in Haiti, you know, we, we had that meal. I don't know where that meal went to. There it is. Can you throw that to me, Aubrey? I was talking to Scott Hahn earlier. He had mentioned to me before, you know, we packed these meals. Do you remember most, do you realize most children in Haiti, they just get one meal a day? That's all they get. They just get one meal a day. And hunger is a very real problem. Malnourishment and uh, lack of nutrition is a very real issue. If you were in the 1040 window, there's a, there's a, there's a pastor in Iran who's being tortured right now for his faith, who's being persecuted. If you hear about the second coming, you don't just go, If you're a believer, you're thinking, that's my hope, that Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again in the Shekinah glory, and He creates a new heaven and a new earth, there's not going to be any hunger. There's not going to be any poverty. There's not going to be any disease. It'll all be right. And that is the excitement and anticipation that Jesus is coming again. And everything's going to be right. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden on steroids. That's the promise and that's the hope. So others aren't yawning, but we're in our bubble. 
And we got all we need. And we got more than we need. And we're thinking, oh, I haven't been on my vacation yet. We're so blessed, we can't see the forest because of the trees sometimes. The picture of Jesus. The hope. That's why I keep saying, be alert. Be on guard. Watch. We see in verse 33. Be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house and gave authority to his slaves and gave each one of them work and the commander of the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, he might suddenly come and find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. You know, people approach the second coming in one of two ways. I want you for just a second, I'm not picking on you if you're a 65-year-old man, but I want you to think if you're a 65-year-old man, if you're a 65-year-old man, you look at life one of two ways. You either look at, you know, I've kind of lived it, and I'm just going to kind of hang on till the end. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep in. I'll just do whatever I want because I don't have that much longer, and there's not much left to do here, and I'm just going to kind of exist. Some people take that mentality. And I think that's indicative a lot of times of evangelicals in North America. Or some 65-year-old men think, you know what? I don't know how much longer I got. 10, 15, 20, 25 years, but I want to make the most of it. I want to leave a legacy. I want to think through what am I going to leave for my children? What am I going to do for my children? What impact am I going to make? I don't want to just kind of sleep it off until it just comes because it's coming and I can't do anything about it. I want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. I want my life to count. I recognize the time is near. And I don't want to be naive about it, but I don't want to quit living right now. There's the picture right there for us as believers in Christ. Jesus says, don't be asleep. Don't fall asleep. What does it look like for us to fall asleep? I want to just give you some thoughts about what it looks like for us to be asleep in North America. What it looks like for us to be asleep as a church today. Number one, biblical illiteracy. Hey, biblical illiteracy in our evangelical churches, is a kind of uh, an alarming proportion right now. I, I could give you statistics, but they just depress me, so I don't even want to talk about them right now. But one of the things that I want to challenge you, if you're a believer, is to study your Bible. And one of the reasons we offer so many Bible studies is for that reason, so that you can have an understanding of the hope that's within you, so that you can give an account of the faith and the hope that is within you. So that's why we have Bible studies going on right now. We had Bible studies last hour. We'll have Bible studies during the week. We want you to plug in. That's why we do discipleship. If you've not been discipled, we'd love for you to take us up on that offer and allow us to disciple you. Apathy toward outreach. People hear about outreach and about the gospel. And, you know, here's a good question. When's the last time you shared about your hope, about your faith in Christ with someone else? Number three, missionary activity overseas overseas seems odd. I run into people all the time. They go, tell me again why... Why are you helping kids over there? Why are you sending missionaries over there? I mean, you know, all those people, they can just, they, they'll know about it. They'll find out. I mean, what about, what about here? Well, why don't we just concentrate our money here? Why don't we just take care of ourselves? And it's just such a, again, egocentric mentality. Jesus said that we're to take the gospel into all nations, into all people groups. Resistance to church membership and accountability. Now, I know this right here. I know this is going to be offensive. So, and, and don't be like the guy who last week who brought me and said, you know, I know you were talking to me. Did my friend tell you? And I said, no, I don't, I don't know who your friend is. Thank you very much. I, I don't, I, I'm not picking on you. This is indicative of our culture. And let me say this. Church membership does not send you to heaven. 
And, you know, God might not be leading you to be a member of this church. And that's fine. He might be leading you down the road. That might be where you need to be. You go there. But you know what I think is important? I think it's important that we establish accountability. We want to live in a society where there's no commitments. There's nothing expected. I just do what I want. I float in and out. There's no accountability. And then the problem is when we're not connected, then when something goes wrong, you're like, we don't know anything about it. We don't have any connection points. God set the church up for a purpose. It's one of the institutions that he inaugurated, okay? Not we, mankind didn't come up with the church. God set this up for us. And part of it is for the purpose of accountability. And so that's one of the reasons we join. And when you join, uh, we have you kind of go through a process of commitments that you'll make and things that we want to make sure that we do for you and things that you're committed to do. Lack of giving, lack of prayer, consumer mindset. Hey, it's about me. And, um, you know, I don't like that music like that. I wish you'd turn it down. I wish you'd turn it up. I wish that other guy would preach more. Uh, you know, that kind of insight. And spiritual disciplines seem radical. We mentioned spiritual discipline. You go, that's just crazy stuff. Can I tell you, you get out of North America and in any other time in history, spiritual disciplines, that's just part of the faith. They're not radical. They're not crazy. Now, you may say, what are the spiritual disciplines? We talked about them a couple of weeks ago, but let me give you some uh, again. And if these seem radical, it's probably because you're on the verge of going to sleep. Number one, study. Study of God's Word. Making that a discipline in your life each day. Number two, journaling. It's not something you have to do necessarily, but this is a good method. Sometimes we just kind of get stuck in our spiritual life. This is a great way to write down our prayers and just kind of write to God and write what we're learning and just kind of think out loud. Number three, memorizing Scripture. Praying. Worship, making worship a value and something you're committed to. Outreach. Number seven. Okay. Serve. Number eight, give. Fasting. Uh, there's another one. Uh, come back to this. We talk about fasting. Just be honest. Some of you, I just sounds that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Matter of fact, I've heard, I hear, hear this all the time. You know, I would fast, but if I miss a meal, it just kind of gives me a headache. Scott was telling me about 80 to 90 percent of the kids in Haiti they are feeding from, they get one. Think their head hurts? I'm telling you guys, we live in such a bubble, we miss it. We miss it. And, uh, you know, our challenge, take one of these and make it your meal for the week. That's a dose of reality. It's one of the things we've challenged you to do in Lent. Participate in community and sacrifice. I wish we had more time to talk about that because that's, Again, I think if you can just do the, just work on the top ten, you'd be in, in great shape to just kind of awaken ourselves. You know, we talked about 9-11 earlier, and there was a guy named Rick Rescorla. Some of you maybe have heard of him. And Rescorla in 1985 became the, um, he became the security chief of Dean Witter, which would later merge with Morgan Stanley, and he would become the, um, the chief of security. And uh, after the Pan-11 terrorist attack, in the 1980s, he he began to look at it and he began to think about it. And he was a retired military colonel in the Army. And uh, he began to think, you know what? I think the World Trade Center is going to be a target for terrorists. So he began to consult with people who were uh, terrorist experts. And they said, you know, that probably is a reasonable expectation. So he met with one. He said, you know, if they were to attack the World Trade Center, he goes, how would that occur? And at the time, uh, Morgan Stanley, they owned, uh, they owned more, they had more people, more tenants than any other company. They had about 29 floors of uh, personnel, about 3,000 employees. 
And they said, well, they'd probably drive it underneath. They'd probably drive vans or, or cars, large cars underneath and try to blow it up in that manner. And sure enough, uh, that's what happened. He began to tell his uh, he began to tell his superiors and begin to say, hey, we need to prepare for this, but nothing was done. And in 1993, you know, the attempt was made to blow up the World Trade Center. Six people were killed and a thousand were injured. And they took the, they took security measures after that. But then as he began to think about it and began to talk to, to experts, he said, you know, I don't think this is the end. He said, I think they'll try again. And what he discovered is if they tried it again, uh, he assessed through multiple conversations and through multiple studies that they would probably fly airplanes into the building. Matter of fact, you can go online and he basically says all this. They will fly buildings into the World Trade Center. They will fly, excuse me, planes into the World Trade Center. So he begins to, to tell his superiors again, look, I think we ought to move because this day's coming. We need to move. And, but they said, you know, we're in a lease to 2006 and that would just be millions of dollars. We can't forfeit that. We just need to stay. Why don't you just kind of prepare people? And so just kind of winked at him thinking, you know what? We're not going to have to worry about that. That just seems kind of radical. So Rest Corla began to train all the employees at, at Dean Witter at that point or at Morgan Stanley. Uh, he began to train them and every three months they would do these emergency evacuation drills. And they did that for years until that day came, 9-11. Rescorlo was on the 44th floor. He hears the crash. He knows immediately what's happened. He gets his bullhorn out, and he begins to systematically evacuate the building. He gets everybody from Morgan Stanley except for six people out of the building. They get down there. There's six they can't account for, so he goes back up. And they keep telling him, don't go, don't go. And he said, no, this is my mission. This is what I'm called to do. He said, I'm going up. I'll be back when our last employee's down. And he was never seen again. His body was never discovered. You know Why? He, you know, he looked like a nut those other days. Every time people would hear him, I'm sure when they were doing those drills, they were thinking, we're doing these stupid drills, these stupid evacuations again. People made fun of him. People thought he was crazy. But no one thought he was crazy 9-11. Let me say this. You look at this and you think, this is over the top. That's just a little bit too much. But you know what? It's like I said earlier. One day Jesus is going to come and he's going to blow the whistle. Everybody out of the pool. The question is, are you ready? You can blow it off now and think, yeah, whatever. You can just kind of yawn. Talk about the second coming. Or you can realize that Jesus 300 times, not Jesus, but the New Testament 300 times tells us to be ready, that Jesus is coming again. Hey, the vast majority of people were not ready for 9-11, but there was one guy who was ready. And there were nearly 3,000 people who, who lived today because he was ready. Are you ready for Jesus' return today? Let's take a moment. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ. I want to invite you to come today and to place your faith with Him. Recognize that you're a sinner and that He is God and that He possesses the power to forgive your sins and to give you life. If you've not done that, I want to invite you to do that today. If you're a believer, I want to invite you to wake up, to be alert. To recognize Jesus is coming and we need to be ready. We need to be about proclaiming the good news and we want to proclaim hope. One of the reasons that we do this feeding program in Haiti is to give hope to boys and girls who wouldn't have it so that they can see the light of Christ and experience the goodness of the Father and be drawn to Him. What about you? What are you doing to shed light and hope to those in your world? Are you the 65-year-old guy who's just coasting till the end? 
or we say, you know what, I want to make the most of this time. I want to make the most of the time that I have left here up on this earth to make a difference for Christ. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you today, I pray that you would draw them to come and experience your grace and your forgiveness. For those of us who are believers, God, will we? I pray that we'd commit to make the most of this time, that we would wake up, that we would recognize that we are sleeping, and that we would hear the alarm, and we would respond to your Spirit to shed the light of the world to the lost and dying world. Thank you, God, that you save and that you give hope. May we be your instruments this day.